the Mike Tomlin Game Day Podcast with Steelers Digest Editor Bob Labriola. Okay, Coach, uh, tonight is the second of the four preseason games, so are you looking for different things from your team against the Eagles than you did last week against the Cowboys? In some instances, yes. You know, some of our guys have been in a stadium, and particularly those that have been into a stadium for the first time, there are significant opportunities for growth after that. You're no longer speculating. It's no longer a mystical thing. And so they're finding their rhythm, and I think it's reasonable to expect them to elevate their play to be more comfortable for their talents to show more consistently um, as they gain that exposure. Some guys are stepping into the stadium for the first time this year, so um, the, ver- the standards of expectation will be very similar to last week in some instances. And, and, that's, the, and that's probably part of this journey. Uh, different guys are at different stages of readiness and development, and so you go in with multiple agendas, and, and I'm excited about watching. In some instances, guys take a significant step. In other instances, guys getting an opportunity to stick their toe in the water for the first time in 2021. Can you pinpoint any specific areas of play that you want to see improvement or something different? I want to see more cleanliness in terms of our, our pre-snap operation on offense. We didn't get any penalties in that area. But oftentimes you get some leniency in August in terms of pre-snap shifts and motions and whether or not somebody's on the ball or off the ball and a tackle is on the line of scrimmage and passing circumstances and things of that nature. Some of our alignment mechanics and so forth was at an August level, and I'm expecting it to take a significant step uh, because it has to. We all have to be at a professional football level by the time we get to September 12th. So uh, we need to see some growth in some of that in some of those things. Uh, I'd like to switch now to uh, talking a little bit about a couple of your young defensive linemen. Isaiah Bugs uh, entering his third season. Carlos Davis entering his second season. Uh, what do you, have you seen from them so far this summer? And might you characterize their situation currently as one of those two dogs, one bone things? You know, I'm not in a in a mindset yet where I'm narrowing my focus in terms of positional numbers, but very well we could be in that conversation uh, based on their performances thus far and the, and, and the things around them. I'll say this about both guys. They both had, have had good, consistent camps in the areas where they distinguish themselves. Uh, Bugs is being a strong run defender. Uh, he's shown that consistently in run drill-like circumstances. And Carlos is a young, dynamic interior rusher, and he's shown those skills in drills that highlight that aspect of play. Probably the, the difference between them is probably the areas where they do not excel in or they don't have an area of expertise, like how well does Isaiah Bugs rush the passer, how well does Carlos Davis stop the run. Uh, will ultimately determine roles that could potentially develop uh, for those guys. Have you seen any separation among the guys you've been working at the nickel cornerback spot? You know, um, I'd like to say yes, um, but but the process has kind of been slowed down at times uh, by injury and other things. Uh, Brooks has missed some time since the Hall of Fame game uh, with an injury. Uh, he was progressing well, um, but one man's misfortune is another man's opportunity. I think Art has smoothed out some elements of his game and added some detail with the extra reps that he's, he's absorbed. A guy like Shakir Brown has had an opportunity. They had an elevated number of reps. And so we're getting a good exposure to a good number of guys. In our hip pocket, we got Cam Sutton, who's been working outside, but we know he's fully capable of working inside. And maybe uh, next week as we go into our next game, we'll work at some package football where we'll have an opportunity to look at Cam in some of those areas. We know what Cam can do. 
Cam understands the job. So really, we've kind of set him off on the side through the better part of this early portion of the process because we, we got a known commodity there in that, in that area. So let's just pretend you came into this camp with the idea that we're going to look at five guys there. I'm just picking a number out of my head. And say you get to the third guy and you say, I like this guy. Then you still look at number four and five just to see them all? Or are you, do you have a level where you say, that's, that's the level I'm looking for, I'm going to stick with that? The process and in, in the, in the rigors of the process – Make make me say I want to look at all the guys because it's just guys are going to be available some days. Guys are not going to be available. Attrition is a part of it. Um, day-to-day injuries during this developmental process create opportunities for others. Invariably, it takes care of itself. Invariably, if, if five was the number, I'd have plenty of opportunities to see all five operate on some form or fashion because just the challenges of this process creates those those opportunities for them. Oh, you got a two-man battle at punter. So is is part of that battle whether a guy is a good holder for Chris Boswell? Is that part of the punter job, or is that just something you kind of add on to it? You know, it, it, it is a significant box to check. And um, we, we don't necessarily evaluate um, levels of excellence, but they have to be more than adequate. And once they're more than adequate, we can focus our energies on their punting abilities. Both punters are more than adequate in terms of holding, so it'll be a non-factor in determining who gets the job. Is the reason that punters are usually holders throughout the NFL the practice convenience? The practice convenience and their availability throughout the day, and even at the collegiate level. You look at any football team structure, man, the specialists spend a lot of time together, off on the side and so forth. It's just a good working relationship, and it allows them to be more productive. Years ago was always the backup quarterback, for instance, and things of that nature. But um, those guys got so many offense and defensive football responsibilities in today's game. It's more a natural act for for that guy to to develop that skill set. Think about the hands required to be a punter um, in, in the job of punting. And so it's a natural thing that that becomes a area of expertise that falls under their umbrella. It makes more efficient use of time and allows those guys to get more critical work. In what ways is Robert Spillane a better player than he was a year ago? His general awareness. I'm seeing it come out in competitive circumstances, the fine motor skills of, of the position, um, it was interesting. I, I'll give you a very specific example. He was matched up in a one-on-one passing situation with Zach Gentry, who is a six-eight tight end, who is a real obstacle in terms of working through to break up a ball. Um, he did a unique thing. He was really close to him in coverage. The ball was high. He let him catch the ball at the high point, and then he attacked the ball as Zach Gentry brought the ball down in, in, into, his, into his arms. And that's just – that's just experience and awareness and comfort that allows you to make a good, thoughtful decision like that. When you're trying to combat a big guy, if you're trying to play it at the high point, you're going to lose because he's 6'8 and you're not. And, and what he did was he allowed that guy to bring the ball in and seemingly get a reception, but then he broke it up when the ball got down to a level in which he could play it. And it was just a really mature play. Um, and it's kind of an example of the growth and development of his game from an awareness standpoint and how it turns up from a statistical standpoint. Can you coach that, or do you, does that guy just have to come to that naturally, organically? You coach, you coach your tail off, um, but it is a point when there is an aha moment, you know, for, for plays such as that. 
um, you continually coach it. You try to bring those type of uh, awarenesses out in all the guys, um, but it takes a certain level of experience and poise to do it under duress, to recognize the moment as it's happening and execute a certain technique like that. Um, you never try to combat a big guy at his level, um, but that ball eventually is going to come down to your level. And, and so if you have a little bit of patience at the catch point, you can still get the breakup. What makes a good short yardage running back in the NFL? Man, a, a, a guy that won't be denied, a guy that has a nose for the line, the game. Um, oftentimes, yes, it comes with physical characteristics like lower body strength and low center of gravity um, and a small strike zone in terms of hit surface. But more than anything, uh, it's the will of the man. It's the, it's the competitive spirit associated with, with winning physical confrontation uh, because invariably it comes down to that. Um, there's going to be there's going to be some confrontation, even when the plays are well blocked, um, because of the nature of defensive calls in those circumstances. There's going to be a confrontation at or around the line of scrimmage, and it's just usually about the will of the man carrying versus the will and the ability of the man tackling. Najee Harris have that. He appears to be highly competitive. Um, it hadn't been many scenarios we've had this guy in in a short period of time that he hadn't been really comfortable in competing in. So, um, you know, but I think that's to be expected, to be quite honest with you. When you're drafting a running back in the first round, uh, they got to have some unique traits. Um, they got to be competitive virtually in all circumstances. And, and he's displayed those things in a very short time. Alex Highsmith got a sack in the preseason opener, and he got it with a spin move on the Dallas tackle. Uh, what makes for an effective spin move, and in what situations is it most effective? You know, the fluidity of it, your ability to, to put the ice pick in the offense, offensive tackles back in this instance, as we say. And really that just talks about the finish of the move. Um, oftentimes guys have an, a nice initial spin move, but their ability to maintain body balance and, and swing their elbow around to finish the move and get on the perimeter of the tackle and seal it, if you will, is the difference. And that's the, elevated, that's the element of his technique that he's really elevated um, over the last 12 months, the finish of that spin move. Um, you know, ideally you like to do it um, on the backside of the quarterback so, you know, he, he doesn't feel it and, and potentially escape from a contained standpoint. Um, but I've seen it uh, effective in a lot of areas. The cleaner the move, uh, the less important the variable of where you execute it is. Um, if you if you finish the move well and you end up on the perimeter uh, of that blocker, you got a chance to, to get home. You've said often that your job as a coach is giving players whatever it is they need a, at a particular time. Uh, what does Stefan Tuitt need from you right now? Man, um, I hadn't spent a lot of time focused on Stefan, to be honest with you. Um, he's been spending a lot of time with our training and, st and strength staff, uh, participating in the partial capacity, um, getting up to playing um, readiness. And so I've been focusing on the guys that are in helmets and gear and working every day. Um, I know what Stefan Tuitt can do. Um, we're more than a month out from the regular season. Uh, I imagine that his process of preparation is running this course. I'm getting great reports daily from the men that are working with him in terms of having their hands on him directly. And so I'm focusing my energies on the guys that are that are playing and working and developing and practicing every day. And I'll get the stuff on to it as he gets closer to participation. Uh, but I was m more referring to his personal uh, trauma that he's going through. Oh, you know, 
you know, Stefan's a grown man. Um, you know, we're here for him, not only in terms of uh, supporters in a professional way, but in a personal way. I've worked with him now for over seven years. We also have professional clinicians on staff because I acknowledge that I am not a trained professional clinician, and I respect that space. When you're talking about the trauma that he and his family have endured this summer, um, you know, I am not in the line of experts, but I am compassionate in that I know the man and I've been a, 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 have a relationship with him for the last seven years. And so I'm open and willing to, to assist in those informal ways, but I'm not going to pretend to be a professional.